Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. I'm Jason Flom, host of Wrongful Conviction. Over the years, hundreds of exonerees have told me their stories. And sadly, with the state of our criminal legal system, we're left with far more cases than I can possibly handle alone. So I've asked some exonerees to handle some of these cases, bringing the kind of perspective to the interviews that could only come from living through their own wrongful convictions. This is one of those interviews. On a hot August night in 1991, University of Pennsylvania grad student Tay Jung Ho was walking with his friend near Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. A white Chevy Blazer with four people inside pulled up beside them. Two of them got out of the car, robbed Tay Jung Ho and shot him. He died of his injuries a few hours later. A cab driver witnessed the shooting. He told police what he saw and what he remembered of the license plate. The first three letters, YCA. Just a few minutes later, the police pulled over a white Chevy Blazer with YCA on the plate. They thought they caught the criminal. He was a 21-year-old Chester Holman III. He didn't match the description of the shooter, and there were only two people in his car, not four. Chester didn't have a weapon nor anything from the robbery. Nevertheless, he was arrested and taken to the station. In May 1993, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is Wrongful Conviction. My name is Jimmy A. Dennis. I spent 25.5 years on death row for a crime I didn't commit. I was a guest on Wrongful Conviction and talked to Jason about my own experience in the criminal justice system years ago. But today, I'll be your guest host. I'm here with Chester Holman III. He and I know each other well. Our stories overlap and highlight the patterns of misconduct in the Philadelphia criminal justice system. Chester, as Jason always says, I'm happy you're here, but I'm not happy that you're here. 
Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Chester Holman. Uh, I've served 28 years on a wrongful conviction. I've now been home uh, since 2019. And today we're also joined by your attorney, Alan Tarver. Thank you for joining us today, Alan. Could you introduce yourself as well? Hi, Jimmy. Uh, my name is Alan Tarber. I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law since 1989, uh, most of which has been criminal defense and uh, civil rights. And I uh, met Chester in 2004, 2005. I had the distinction and, and honor of representing him for 15 years uh, before we actually won his exoneration. Every time I see him and talk to him uh, outside of the prison, it just uh, brightens my heart. Remarkable. Chester, I want to ask you, my friend, what was your life like prior to being stolen away for a crime you didn't commit? I was uh, born in Chester, Pennsylvania. Um, that's where I, I grew up. And then we, uh, at some point, we moved to Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware. You know, it was, um, I said, it was, it was a regular life. You know, we, my, my father worked very hard. You know, my mother was on dialysis. Uh, you know, me and my sister, you know, we were involved in you know, from the time I can remember, it was sports and some type of activity. You know, I, I went to community college and I started off at uh, Wilmington Community College and I moved to Philadelphia Community College and I was studying actual criminal justice. Uh, I didn't know which field I wanted to go into. I didn't know if it was law enforcement or, you know, some type of legal field, but uh, that's what I was doing. And then I got a job at a, uh, as an armored car guard. I was driving for uh, Brooks Armored Car. I went, moved to Philadelphia, down North Philly, Broad and Gerard, and uh, I was there. And, uh, you know, just living my life. I thought the world was my oyster. And I think I had all these plans of <laughs> of how things were going to eventually end up being. And uh, just one that one tragic night, it just all came to a crashing end. And uh spent the next 28 years fighting to get back. When you practice criminal defense, w one of the old adages is, one of the things you, you hear is like, there's no such thing as coincidences, Right. But the other rule is there's always an exception to that case, and, and Chester Holman's case is the exception. Chester was the victim of you know, many things, but most substantially, he was the victim of a very, very remarkable and crazy coincidence. And that is, in this case, which was a terrible case, a, a terrible, brutal killing uh, of, a, of a student, the, the perpetrators drove up to this young man at 1 a.m. in Center City, he was walking home from a, it was walking home from the University of Pennsylvania campus, and um, there were four people in a white Chevy Blazer. Two of them, two men get out. Two women remained in the car as sort of the getaway driver. Uh, the two men run up to the victim, push him to the ground, uh, shoot him, and 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 rob him of his wallet. He, he there was a woman with him, his friend standing directly next to him, witnessed the entire thing from three feet, two, two, three feet away. They get into a white Chevy Blazer and drive away. It's 1 a.m. It's a hot August night. Actually, a lot of people out in Center City. And the vehicle is trailed, is followed by a cab driver who witnesses this. And the cab driver gets half of the vehicle's tag, follows him through traffic for a few blocks and, and disappears. YZA, right? That was the letters. Doesn't get the numbers. As the, the vehicle turns out to have been rented by, I think it was Enterprise, um, they had three, ident three identical vehicles on rental in Philadelphia that same day. And the vehicle, what, what made this even more astonishing is 
they bought and put into service these three vehicles at the same day. So when they registered them, they got tags YZA001, YZA002, YZA003. And the cab driver only got the letters that repeated, not the numbers. As it happens, Chester's driving one of those other vehicles that had been rented by his roommate and had been loaned, given to him to use that weekend. He's driving toward the crime scene. He's stopped five minutes, not five minutes after the murder, driving toward the crime scene in the identical vehicle with the same tag. And he meets the general description of what one of the perpetrators looked like. The young woman in the car with him, Deidre Jones, meet, met the general description of what of one of the women in the car. And they, and they stop him. And I mean, I can imagine you're a young police officer and that's who stopped him. You're thinking, man, I, I just solved this crime. I got... Uh, you know, you know, you got a card with the tag. You're thinking you solved the crime. Well, ev- all of the people involved in this case were then convinced they solved the crime. Never mind that Chester was not wearing the his clothing didn't match any of the description the witnesses gave. Never mind that there were only two people, not four people in the car. Never mind there's no no proceeds of the robbery, no weapon, and he's driving back to toward the scene. Never mind all that. Never mind the fact that the young woman who was with the person who was killed can't identify Chester. Other than the vehicle, nothing else lined up. Chester, tell me about your night that night and you were out and what you were doing and where you were going and whom you had with you. Talk about that a little bit for me. I had uh, just returned home from Delaware. I went down to my parents' house and I spent most of the day in Delaware and I was there to about maybe midnight. Um, I left there and I went home to where I lived on Broad and Gerard. I uh, came out the garage, went around front, and I passed Deidre, her sister, and uh, I spoke to him. And she, Deidre asked me where I was going. I said, up to my apartment. So, And then I said, what do you want to do? Now, because this was my, my first full day of vacation. I had never had a vacation in my in my life on, <laughs> on, on, a, on a job. <laughs> right, right, so, right. you know, that Monday, I was starting vacation for a week vacation and a paid vacation. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, so I'm excited. You know, I'm like, I ain't ready to go to sleep. It's Saturday night. I mean, I was like, listen, let's, you want to go somewhere? But we didn't know where to go. So I was like, listen, I had a friend that lived down on 52nd and Greenway. I said, let's go down here and check out him. So we get downstairs, and I had a, a black Toyota Celica GT at the time. And then we also had the Blazer. So I asked her which car she wanted to take. So we I said, let's take the Blazer, put the miles on that car rather than my car. <laughs> so so we get out, we pull out, and we circle around, and we go straight down to Broad Street. But as soon as we turned on to Lombard, there was a, I mean, there wasn't a car or person in sight. I mean, I'd never seen Philly like this. I mean, it was like, like a dead zone. So I, I knew something wasn't right, but I, I kept going, and uh, I turned the music down, and we approached the first light on Lombard. And uh, I stopped at that light, and I saw a police car going north. So when the light turned green, I proceeded forward and, you know, I'm, I'm looking in the rearview mirrors. Next thing you know, the lights pop on. So I was like, damn, what did I do? So I pull over, maybe like a half a block down, I pull over. And next thing you know, they jump out with guns drawn. Oh, wow. I know that was very uncomfortable. Yeah. So I asked DJ, I said, what we do? What we do? She said, I don't know. I don't know. Next thing you know, they're in front of the car with the guns pointed at us. You know, we got our hands up and they took us out the car and uh, put the handcuffs on us. And uh, 
And this is you know, where your nightmare I, began. Yes. Tell me how you felt uh, being arrested and then subsequently um, being taken to the police station and what happened in that interrogation room with those police detectives? Well, that, that night um, after we were put out of the car, I was placed in the uh, back of a police car and uh, I saw Deidre being placed in another car. And I didn't, we, I didn't know where we were going, but later found out we were being taken to the scene of the crime. So when we got there, uh, there was like maybe four or five people underneath the street. Like I saw police officers take these four or five people, whoever, whatever it was, go to Deidre's where she was and they opened the back door and I saw them look in and then they came back and uh, did the same thing to me. And I made sure I stuck my head out so they could see me. And, um, you know, everybody was like, I heard everybody say, that's not him. That's not him. And then uh, I heard over the police radio saying the guy had died take him, take the uh, suspect to uh, homicide. So I said, what? So when I heard that, I said, uh, I said, you know, my first thought is this is a murder. So, you know, I was like, what? So I'm telling, I said, officer, I said, you got the wrong guy. I'm telling you got the wrong guy. And when I get in the car, one of the officers said that you're done now. He said, you're never going to see the light of day. And I was like, you know, I'm just sitting in this back seat, like how in the world is this happening? So we get to eighth and race and they take me upstairs and put me in this room that's freezing and I see this green chair that's bolted to the floor. So they put me in this chair, they handcuffed me to this chair and I'm just sitting there like freezing, like this cannot be happening. So my first interaction with the officer was detective Jeff Pyrie. He came in and I'm, I'm a little excited like to tell my story I mean, try to get this all worked out. So I'm, I'm thinking it's going to work out. And he comes in and punches me right in the mouth. And he said, you like killing people in my city, right? You know what I mean? So I was just like looking at him. I didn't know what to say or do. So I'm just sitting there. And uh, he walks out. So I'm just sitting there just like stunned. Like, this is this is bad. I'm just in my, this is bad. I told him, I said, I work for Brooks Armored Car. You know what I mean? I said, I don't know what happened. I said, but I drive around millions of dollars. Every day. I'm in and out of the banks. Uh, Garden State Parkway, we're picking up money. I mean, I'm I got three million dollars on the average in the back of my truck every day. Right, you're an honorable citizen. You are a good citizen of Philadelphia. Period. Yeah. So I said, if I want to rob somebody, I'm not gonna rob a commerce on the street. I'm gonna pull this truck and just keep going. Mm-hmm. Looking back, where I feel like I, I really messed up was first of all speaking to him in the first place. But I just figured that you know, since I had nothing to hide, it was okay to talk. And then by me working for Brooks, you know, I thought that would just like bolster my, my innocence and, and show them I had no reason to rob anybody, but uh, it didn't happen. So I told him that I had a gun back in my apartment, my work gun. And uh, I told him where it was in my apartment. I said, I got my badge, my, my bulletproof vest, rounds of ammo was in my bottom drawer inside my bedroom. And, uh, you know, later on down the road, I come to find out that was all used against me. You did not mess up. We are taught in this country that the police are our friends from the time we are babies and that we are supposed to go down to the police station, cooperate and do us right. And that's all you did. You did what any actual citizen would do. Now we know that you can't even talk to them at all because they are not trustworthy. That is exactly what Chester's mindset was, because we've talked about this. You were like, you thought they would figure it out. They would work. This is going to get worked out. They're going to get to the bottom of this. There's a mistake. At some point, the police stopped becoming 
detectives. They stop trying to discern the truth and they start becoming advocates. And they start to do everything they do is to build the case to make it stronger against who they've, in their judgment, who they've decided is guilty, as opposed to continuing to investigate and try to get to the actual truth. Tunnel vision. Yeah. And that's, that is one of the things I have learned in the system is that police, the, the culture, the, the science of policing, it's more of the culture of policing, is we are trying to get to the truth to a point. But once we decide or we discern in our judgment who it is, everything at that point becomes how to build a case against that person. And they will ignore other evidence. They will suppress other evidence. They will hide it. They will destroy it. Correct. And that's a problem. This episode is underwritten by global law firm Greenberg Traurig. Through its pro bono program, Greenberg Traurig leverages its more than 2,400 lawyers across 42 offices to serve the greater good of our communities and provide equal access to justice for all. In the field of criminal justice, Greenberg Traurig attorneys have exonerated and freed a man in Philadelphia, represent numerous individuals previously sentenced to life for crimes committed as juveniles in resentencing hearings, and received the American Bar Association's 2021 Exceptional Service Award for Death Penalty Representation for their work on five death penalty cases. GT is reimagining what big law can be because a more just world only happens by design. So, Wildman, let's talk about some of the players in the case. Can you tell me about the police investigating the crime? Let's start with uh, David Baker, who was the detective who, who took the, the key statement in this case, which was Deirdre Jones' statement, Chester's friend who was in the car. So she signs a seven, eight-page single-space statement, extraordinarily detailed about the events of the night. With, I mean, with detail that you would not be able to provide unless you were there minute to minute. So how does that happen? How does David Baker get the statement? So over the course of the night, the police are interviewing numerous witnesses. There, there probably were 8, 10, 12 people who, who were interviewed who were witnesses, including Chester. So they are gathering lots and lots of details and lots and lots of information. And, and throughout the night, they're going in to see Deirdre saying, you know, you're going to tell us what happened. She's like, you know, she sticks to it. I'm not involved. I don't know what happened. I couldn't tell you. And eventually um, they, they get her to relent. Um, they threaten to take her children away. They threaten to charge her with as a conspirator that she's going to go to jail for life. The straw that breaks, I think, that breaks the camel's back for her. She's not getting a lawyer. Is they walk in with Chester's statement, which of course is completely exculpatory, and they say, "Oh, your boyfriend has confessed. He's testified. I mean, he's going to jail. You're not going to help us. We'll just charge you. He's already admitted it, which of course he didn't. So she signs the statement, and um, that's how this David Baker gets the statement. So, so he David Baker was instrumental in in another exoneration that happened. Roughly around the same time, the case was a little was 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 a little later. Anthony mm -hmm. Wright, obviously, yeah. uh, Jimmy, you know Anthony Wright. Anthony Wright was exonerated about a year before Chester. Same detective, same mo, um, all virtually very very similar situation. 
But but Jimmy, it's important to note that I mean this is not exclusive to, to David Baker. I think what you see in the exonerations that have occurred over the past five years and even before is a pattern of this sort of these sort of tactics that existed across the homicide unit. David Baker was by no means the worst of the detectives. I think he, I think David Baker was was more of a sort of ordinary regular detective who just followed the path that was before him. That's a really good point, Alan, because it's not just one bad officer. We always talk about these bad apples, but what happens to an apple core when you have one bad apple? It ruins the whole bunch. And what we're talking about, it's a culture that encourages this behavior and ultimately leads to innocent people like myself and Chester Holman having decades of their life destroyed behind bars for something that we didn't do. And so now, Alan, I want to talk about some of the witnesses. Tell me about how the police built this case against Chester. But first, let's talk about Andre Dawkins. He ends up being a pretty important to the state's case. Talk about that. Andre Dawkins was a, I believe at the time he may have been homeless. He was in a, he was sweeping up a parking lot at a gas station uh, down the block from where the, the, the murder happened. And Andre Dawkins you know, had a very tough life. He had substance abuse issues. He had mental health issues. He had many, many arrests and convictions for petty thefts and petty offenses. Um, he had open cases at the time. He had a bench warrant at the time. And the police, he threatened to be incarcerated 12 different ways. And basically, they get him to identify Chester, make an ID of Chester. But that was Andre Dawkins. And Andre Dawkins recants his ID years later. He was the first one to recant. You know, we met him, I would say, about eight or 10 years later, and he could not have been more remorseful about doing what he did. It was, it was astonishing how much he remembered. The lead detective, not David Baker, was another detective who is now deceased, knew where Andre hung out. He hung around in a certain part of Center City. And Andre told me that for the entire year or so between the arrest and the trial, this detective would show up and give him give him money every week. All of this history, all of his history, was unavailable to Chester's lawyer at the time. The prosecutor had it. Roger King had it. It was in the file. And it could have been used to impeach him. And Roger King kept that. He hid it. So the jury didn't get the benefit of knowing about Andre's background and all the reasons why he would not have been a credible witness. So, Alan, uh, you mentioned Roger King. I, I know him very well. Um, so explain a little more about who Roger King was and his reputation in Philadelphia at this time. Uh, Roger King was a, a bit of a, a legend in, in Philadelphia, um, a very sort of charismatic African-American prosecutor. He came from Alabama. His dad was a minister. He clearly was raised with this... Uh, the, he learned the language of, of, of preaching. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yes. He was very theatrical. Very theatrical and was very, very effective and deployed that in, in the courts in Philadelphia. Um, and, and, you know, in a very cynical way, the district attorney's office would bring him out and, and assign these cases where, where race was clearly, you know, they, they would, they would never, they would never say it, but obviously they would, 
deploy him in, in a in a very you know where race was a question. I'll say exactly what it was, uh, Alan, for you. Just for the wrongful conviction listening audience, um, what Alan has been speaking to are the dirty tactics of the P- Philadelphia Police Department Homicide Division. Threatening a witness is not uncommon. They did it in Chester case. They did it in Anthony Wright case. They did it in Jimmy Dennis case, my case, right? And they would threaten the witness, tell them they put them in jail, tell them they take away their kids, so on and so forth. And then and in terms of Roger King, he would lie. He would cheat. He would steal. He would pay witnesses. He was nothing more than an evil man. He was very. He was a very amoral person uh, and a very amoral prosecutor. So prosecutor's duty is to do justice. And for Roger King, doing justice was winning at all costs. There was, there was no review. There was no reconsideration. There was no reflection should new evidence come up. In Chester's case, we found hidden evidence that he hit that was hidden in his file uh that he didn't turn over and then and then after the trial when it was discovered tried to say this was that he wasn't aware of it it was accidental it was in his file with timestamps that showed he had this before trial Chester speak to me about your charges what what were you charged with and then subsequently when they took you to the county prison, because I want people to understand and know that it's something to be in prison, period. But it is a different animal when you are innocent. Speak to that, if you will. I was just more or less numb because uh, I couldn't believe that this was happening. You know what I'm saying? You watch TV all the time and you, and you see all these different things on TV about these police shows and all that, but you never see this. And I asked one of the officers, I said, yeah, can, I, can I use the phone? I said, I haven't got on the phone. I said, can I call my mom? Well, when I called, you know, I, I was so relieved to hear her voice when she picked up the phone. It's like it was only a half a ring, and she'd already picked up the phone. And uh, you know, before I could say anything, she had already told me because it was all over the news. I said, "Mom, we're gonna need a lawyer." And she said, "We're already working on it." And um, I said, uh, "We're gonna need the best lawyer." And uh, you know, I'm crying back and forth. We both crying. Me and my mom, we crying. But at the same time, I'm realizing I can't keep crying. Like just you know, being here, I need. I knew that much. So uh, she said. Um, we're going to get a lawyer. You know, we're going to get you out of there. So I'm believing that. And I didn't know the, uh, uh, you know, what murder charges carried. I didn't know I was looking at life. I ain't looking at none of that. I just knew it was, it was, it was bad. And I ended up going to uh, DC. DC had no cells and they put me in this hallway and we were just lined. It was just guys lined up in this hallway and I'm sleeping on the floor. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking around like this cannot be happening. I was there. I was only in D.C. for, I think it was two days. And uh, uh, they told me because I had a homicide and it was a high profile uh, homicide that I was going to be moved to a uh, Holmesburg prison. And that is the roughest county prison in Philadelphia it is the worst of the worst. And I didn't know that at the time. And as soon as I walked on the block, I saw my face on the TV and I see like the whole block just got quiet. And everybody's looking back at me. And I'm like, oh, my God. So uh, they take me and they put me in this cell all the way in the back and they give me a single cell by myself. And I was in the cell for maybe 10 minutes. And these old three old guys came into the cell, you know, and opened the gate. You know, I'm thinking first thing in my mind is they about to attack me, you know, and, you know, that's what I'm thinking. And uh, it was three old Muslim guys and they came in there and they just basically told me, look, man, we saw your situation on the TV. He says, listen, he said, you're going to be all right. And they gave me a rundown of the block. They said, look, mind your business. You know what I mean? Respect one another. You know what I'm saying? Don't look at nobody's cell. And that's, and that's what I got. That's, that was my, 
my lesson. They gave you the lay of land and you you were very fortunate to have those good Muslim brothers. Uh, I wish you knew their names so we could call their names out. So when you get to trial, when you know now know that you are going to trial, how does that make you feel? So I, I was real hopeful. You know, and I said, there's no way they, a jury can find me guilty because the jury isn't corrupt. Like the, the police officers and the district attorney, I said, these are people of my peers. So I, I held out a little bit more hope. Uh, uh, so, you know, preparing for trial, you know, watching the whole process unfold. You know, I'm listening to Roger King. I'm, I'm watching all his movements and listening to his, all his antics. You know, I, I said, man, this, this is going to be a battle right here. And I was just wondering, you know, if, if my attorney at that time, which is real style, was up for it. I, I just didn't, you know, I know they had came to me with a deal, you know, off me like the five to ten. They were like, listen, uh, just take the deal, you know, and uh, give up a shooter. And, you know, you got three years left and, and you'll be home. Let me speak to that real quick, though, because that's another tactic. Every single one of us who had a high profile case was offered a deal. And every single one of us exonerees in Philadelphia said no. And that's what you did, Chester. Once again, this speaks to his innocence, but it speaks strongly to his character. So I'll just say this. The deal that was offered was a phenomenal deal, given the jeopardy that Chester faced. Life without parole in Pennsylvania is life without parole. There's no there's no loophole. There's no escape valve. I mean, there are innocent people who would have taken that deal, I can assure you, given given the fear of facing life in jail. So it, it's no small bit of bravery not to take that. I'll just say that. And for me, that's why Chester is in my phone as a champion. He's a brave guy. Uh, so that's no small feat. Roger King presents the state's case and they have the victim's friend who was standing next to him when the robbery and murder happened. They have Andre Dawkins, whom they were paying to lie for them. And they have your friend, Deidre, who they threatened to get this statement. Alan, let's talk about the defense and what did Chester lawyer Gerald Stein present? So I thought um, Jerry did a good job, very good job with what he had. Um, he he cross-examined Andre Dawkins very effectively, again, for what he had. He didn't have all of his background. Chester, were you, when you were sitting there in that courtroom and you had all these lies being bandied about, about you, how did you feel that your attorney had done for you and his representation of you? Looking back, I mean, you know, and going back to that moment, um, you know, it, it's it's all new to me, Jimmy. You know what I'm saying? It's it's all new. So I, I'm I'm watching it as it unfolds, and I'm I'm hearing it. I'm knowing these are lies, uh, and you know, at this point, I'm just like, it, it was a fifty-fifty. Like Alan said, you know, I think he did the best of what he could, you know, with what he had. But the thing for me and, and, and Gerald Stein, where where we differ, was that uh, I wanted to testify, and I was very adamant on testifying. But Gerald Stein had told me that I wasn't going to testify. And he told me that he was going to relinquish himself from the case if I testified. So uh, uh, my mom and my grandmother, you know, they were so trusting of, of, of you know, the attorney. Because we don't know. But I said, OK. I said, you know, I said, I'm going to trust this. I said, OK. And I didn't end up testifying. 
you were literally put in a no-win situation because here it is, the decision was yours because it's your life. Your life. He said that uh, uh, Roger King will tell you apart. He did say that. But my whole my whole mindset was always from the very beginning was I have nothing to hide, man. I have nothing to hide. And you just want the jury and everyone in courtroom to know the truth. I get it. I I I I totally get it. I was going to say, Jimmy. I was just going to say, like the conventional wisdom, and this is you know what you learn coming up is it's better not to testify. Once you exercise your right to testify, in some large way, the case becomes a referendum on your testimony. It's generally perceived to be a very risky move. One bad answer or you get into a bad little line of questioning and you may have a strong case, but you could lose jurors because now they think you're not being honest or you don't have a good answer for one thing. There's a lot of people doing a lot of time because they ex- they chose to exercise their right to testify. Like I, I just felt like all these negative things have been said about me that, you know, I, and I haven't had an opportunity to say anything. This was my one opportunity, and I was I was willing to take the chance. I said, if they gave me the death penalty, life, whatever, I didn't care. I said, you know, I want to be able to stand up and, and fight for myself. Even after we found guilty, I didn't never got to speak till after I got out of prison. This is twenty eight years later, so twenty eight years of silence. We all on wrongful conviction wanted to have you on here was to give you a voice that you hadn't had for so many years. And so we are immensely glad that you and Alan have showed up today. Tell me about when you were family, when you were convicted at trial, Chester, and uh, was your family in the courtroom? How did everybody feel? And what happened that day when the jury came back uh, with their verdict? Man, um, that was a, yeah, that was, that was, that was, uh, you know, I think the roughest day of my life, actually, uh, my uh, the fate of my my future was right here in these people's hands. And, uh, you know, listening to Roger King make his his final argument and, you know, my, my attorney. And I, I was just like, you know, this can go either way, you know, because I'm sitting here knowing I'm innocent. But at the same time, I'm listening to Roger King and I'm like, you know, he got me questioning myself, <laughs> you know, because his, his 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 closing argument was just ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, did I do it? You know, because it was just that compelling. I very well know that he came and pulled out all the stops and probably even told the jury and everyone in the courtroom that it was a society's right to convict you that if they didn't, they were basically letting a criminal back on the streets because that's what he has did. And every single closing argument tried to get the public to take up arms for justice and convict an innocent person. Yeah. So after after the, at the conclusion of all that, you know, uh, you know, I looked at each juror and the, uh, the jury foreman. He looked at me and he winked, you know, and gave me like a you know heads like a head nod. And I'm like, okay, maybe maybe they do believe, you know. And uh, they went out, and uh, I think it was maybe like a day and a half. When they came back in, no one looked at me. You know, it wasn't the same as when they went out. So my, my heart immediately fell, you know, into my stomach. And I'm just like, this is not going to be good. But I still was holding on to a little bit of hope. So uh, the judge, you know, read off his spill. And then, uh, you know, he asked for a, a verdict. And they came back and they read the first degree. And it was it was not guilty. So I was excited. I'm like, okay, all right, maybe this is, you know, I'm like, okay, I had hope. 
Then when they said second degree, and uh, they said, I'm sorry. <clears throat> no, they said, um, they said guilty. And, you know, I was just like, you know, how? How? You know, how? And then they read off the other charges, murder, and, you know, I just, I just, I didn't understand. And I, I turned around, I looked at my mother, and my mother's face was just like, like I can still see it so clearly. I mean, she was just like, she was devastated. You know, and my father, he was just sitting there, you know, but my mom's face as well, I'll never forget. So after that, I just, did, I heard nothing else. And I remember my knees buckled a little bit, and I fell down a little bit, and and uh, they asked me if I had anything to say, and I and I told the judge, I said, "You got it wrong." I said, "You know, this is this is wrong." I said, "You know, I said I've never lied, you know, about my, my innocence, you know." And I, I I ran it all down, and um, you know, he acted like he never even he didn't hear nothing I said. That was a wrap. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. I guarantee our listening audience, if you go 
and look at everybody trial transcripts who's been on wrongful conviction, you will see that when they sentenced us, that we stood before that judge and we said, once again, you're getting it wrong. We're innocent. We didn't do it. We don't belong here, so on and so forth. Talk to me, Chester, about your, after all the years go by, what was your lowest point being incarcerated upstate? And then we'll get to what your highest point was. But I want the audience to know what was your lowest point in prison for something you didn't do? There were many low, low points. Uh, I think the entire 28 year was a low point. But I think my lowest point was, uh, was losing my mom. You know, cause she had been my, my, my strongest advocate, my, my biggest supporter. Um, you know, she was like everything, everything to me. And, uh, when you lose a loved one, it's, it's going to be tough whether you're in prison or not, but being in prison, you know, it, it's, I think it's even harder because like I said, you know, this is the one person I would, I would did anything for in my life, you know, and did everything for me and, uh, to go back into that block and not be able to cry and shed a tear and, and show this weakness, you know, it, it was, it was, it was, it was hard. Right, because yeah. you can't do that in prison. Right. You couldn't even grieve. My mom had always told me, you know, I talked to my mom every day. If there's a way to, a will, there was a way to get on that phone. I got on the phone and I called her every day. And she always told me every day at the end of the phone call, do not lose yourself. And she told me that every single phone call, do not lose yourself. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, I didn't know, that, know what that meant. But as time went on, I said, okay. She said, be the man that I raised you to be. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all I tried to do, man. You know, I said, these people have, have smeared my name. They've, they've taken my freedom. I said, you know, I'm going to show them that they're wrong. You know, so I just tried to move by my actions and uh, carry myself in a way that would speak louder than my voice could speak. Did you take any classes? Did you, did you immerse yourself in the law? Did you, did you have any hobbies um, to make the time go by while you were fighting to prove your innocence? You know, I, I definitely immersed my, my, myself into the law. Uh, I read a lot of books, did a lot of working out. You know, matter of fact, I worked out more probably than, than I did uh, eating. I was I was actually the strongest guy in the prison. You know, I had broken so many different records. Nice. You know, just trying to take, because I was, that anger was being directed towards these weights. So I was benching like 455 and my man. it was crazy. You know, but. What are you um, benching now? What are you benching now? What you benching now? Uh, no. Nah, Maybe one thirty-five, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it, but it was all about just trying to stay, you know, yeah. stay sharp, the mind, and physically. You know, I said this is gonna be a long fight, so I wanted, you know, keep my wits about me and uh, my physical health. So uh, I did everything I could to keep both sharp. So, kind of summarize what happened in these twenty-five years, you know, because there were pills. Uh, based on recantations by Deidre Jones and Andre Dawkins, and all of those appeals were denied. So I know that it had to be such a debilitating process for you, and things were looking bleak, but you were holding on to hope. Tell me about when you knew that the ebbs of life were turning in your favor. Talk to me a little bit about that, Chester, about when things start to turn in your favor. I'm going to say maybe my 24th, my 25th year, maybe. Uh, things I think things started to, you know, there's more talk. And I think my case was on the front page of the Daily News. And all the staff had it and inmates had it. And I'm like, maybe there's, you know, maybe things are starting to move. And so this is right around the time when Larry Krasner gets elected 
This was a huge day for uh, people in Philadelphia because we had never had a district attorney speak loudly and clearly about innocent people being in prison and trying to right those wrongs. And one of the one of the most important things he did was he hired Patricia Cummins to head the uh, Conviction Integrity Unit. She becomes his number one. So, Alan, tell me about when that process took place in the petition that you wrote and got in front of Patricia Cummins and how all that came to be. I had our petition drawn up. She comes in. I think I walked over there and handed it to her the day after she started. So she called me about two weeks later and said, you know, I read your letter. We're very interested in this case. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to take this up. And I've ordered the homicide file for you to review, which that came in about a month later. And then we found that other evidence in the homicide file. I opened the file. And what was without a question, like the Perry Mason moment of my life, I pull a folder out. The first thing is pull this folder out. It's a memo from a police officer who, who mans the tip line. The night of the crime, they received an anonymous tip, essentially identifying Denise Combs as the driver of the getaway car. As I said in the beginning, there were three rented Chevy Blazers with the same roughly the same tag. But Denise had rent was the name on the rental agreement for the uh, one of the other vehicles, and, and you know we believed she was involved. Um, we we spent a long time looking for her. It was not that it was not that easy to find her, believe it or not. Uh, but when we did, she was very welcoming, and, and, and we spoke to her many, on numerous occasions. I mean, she never admitted involvement in the case, but she said a lot of things that were kind of astonishing, actually. In one of the interviews, she said, I once had a 38, we had to get rid of because there was a quote-unquote body on it. And of course, a 38 was used in this case. This, that was the gun used in this case. And she says this to us. And that memo with the information, the anonymous tip identifying her, gets buried in the homicide file, never turned over. So, Alan, bring me to the day when you know that Chester is going to be released. Tell me how you felt. Tell me how his family felt. Tell me were you able to reach out to Chester and let him know that she was coming to get him. We go to this hearing. The judge ordered this hearing. We didn't know she was going to release Chester that day. We just thought she had some questions. And she asked us a handful of questions. She says, well, I want to release him today. Can you give me an order? And Patricia Cummings, you know, the, the DA, and I look at each other like, yeah, we sit down and we write a handwritten order, <laughs> you know, give it to the judge. And she signs it and faxes, faxes it up to the prison. And then it was like, we all jump in our cars. I call Chester's family. We all jump in our cars and we're like, you know, it was like the uh, amazing race. We're trying to get who's going to get to the prison first, you know. That's an incredible story. That's an incredible moment for you as an attorney. And I just want to say, Thank you for being a vessel that helped reunite Chester with his family. What you did was no, sh no short of being heroic. Um, Chester, how did you feel about that when Alan is telling you even before you got released? How did you feel about that? It, it wasn't really until I got across that bridge that, you know, my shoulders straightened up a little bit because, you know, as you already know, Jimmy, you know what I mean? I'm, 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 I'm 28 years in. And, you know, I hear the talk and I hear all the rumblings, but at the same time, it's like, I'm still here. You know, when they, that, that morning when they called me back to the block and uh, the counselor called me upstairs, she says, um, 
need you to pack your stuff. You're going to be going home tomorrow morning. You know, I, I thought she's playing. So I get over there and she says, uh, uh, the judge is called and uh, they're releasing you today. So I'm just like, how? You know, how? And she's like, I don't know. She said, but you're going home. You know, and it's just like, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, you hope, but you don't, you know, you don't believe it's just, it's, you know what I mean? So I, it was just, everything was just so surreal. And I, I, you know, and before I can get back to my cell, which is on the other side of the block, the whole jail had already, already found out. And I had white shirts, captains, sergeants, you know, everybody coming to my cell, congratulate me. And I, I didn't have, I didn't have an opportunity to really process it, you know? So now the captain of security, he's telling me you have to get outside. You have to get out to prison because now you're considered a civilian. I'm like, Cap, I just been here 25 years. Now you tell me I got to go. He says, yeah, you got 20 minutes. So they gave me 20 minutes to prepare myself to leave a place where I've just spent majority of my life. I, I just couldn't believe it. And then I, I get outside and my sister and my father and my uncle right there in the lobby. And it was just like, you know, and, and I still couldn't believe it. You know, I said, man, you know, and uh, when we finally got across the bridge and I got out the car and I looked back at the prison. And that's when it, it like hit me, like, you know, finally, you know, like, you know, and, and it wasn't even so much about being free. It was just about, I mean, that's the main thing, but them finally hearing my voice and, and believing me, you know? Right. Your day of truth came out. I can tell you firsthand, when you are in prison, all you want is for someone, anyone, to see who you truly are as a human being because you don't belong there. Chester, tell me about your life now, and I hear you have an incredible friend that piles around with you. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I was I was I was very fortunate, you know. To, um, you know, prior to uh, being released, I worked in the activities department at retreat, and uh, they had a dog program where they were we would get dogs from Luzerne County uh, SPCA, and they would bring dogs in uh, for inmates to train. And we had a, a six month old puppy. It was a puggle, very tiny, very tiny. Like I said, I watched this dog for, 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 for months, you know what I mean, from the time she was there. And, uh, you know, once things started pregnant about my case, the activities manager, uh, Ty Kobika, he was actually in charge of the dog program. Anyway, he says, uh, if things ever work out for you, I want you to take one of these dogs. I think you should take Buttons. The dog's name was Buttons at the time. So I was like, no, nah. I said, I said, Ms. K, if I get out, last thing I want to do is take care of a dog. You know, I'm not, you know, that's the last thing I'm trying to do. So, uh, you know, uh, that, that day came and I found I was leaving. I was like, he said, you need, you need to take this dog. And I was like, all right. And I came, brought her home and we renamed her, uh, journey. And, uh, she's upstairs right now. And I, and I got, and I got to say this, man, you know, you know, God does things, you know, just, it just, it's just, the way things happen, man. It's just, you know, this dog really like, I think saved my life. Cause it's, it's been rough out here, you know, for me. And, you know, so, you know, just having her and knowing what we came through and we'll be, you know, where we're at now, it's just been a, a, you know, saving grace for me. And as far as where I'm at now, you know, uh, you know, many people know about the settlement, you know, that was, that, that, that occurred, you know, that brought on a whole nother layer to my life. A lot of difficulties with that. Cause like they say, more money brings more problems. Um, and, uh, and that is the truest statement I think I've ever heard in my life. I'm not complaining about my life because, you know, like I said, where, where we came through and we had to overcome to where we are now. You know, I just I take it all in stride. and I'm grateful for, for it all. But at the same time, man, it's it ain't as easy as people may think. 
you know, going through all that. And then you, they think because they give you the money that life is good now. And, uh, you know, you know, it's just it's, it's a lot to process. You and I, you know, uh, talk about these things often. And I know you have a great deal of wisdom. I want to know what you think our wrongful conviction audience can do to help people like us and stop this from happening to other people. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, getting out to vote. You know, these politicians that are, you know, that have been there in these uh, uh, forever with these old school uh, mentality, uh, you know, um, people who don't believe in justice. I mean, I, I don't understand. You know, I, I have a, a hard time understanding how, uh, you know, people are so hard on Larry Krasner. No one's perfect. We know that already, you know. But, you know, just seeing a few of the things that he's done in terms of trying to right the wrongs, you know. You know, Innocence Project, you know, it, it's one thing, you know, to get involved with Innocence Project, but there's only so much we can do there. And Alan, do you have anything to add? I've, I'll say the same thing Chester just said, vote. And I'll tell you, we did everything. We got recantations. I got news stories. We found the other witness. I found everything. And you know what made a difference? Larry Krasner got elected and was willing to look at the evidence in a different way. Politics is what made the difference. Jimmy, you and Chester are free because of politics and the old way of looking at things and doing things, the old way of running a DA's office, prosecutor's office was not going to ever change any of this. The only way things are going to change is to, is the, is the support and promotion of progressive prosecution period. So Chester, we have something on wrongful conviction called closing argument. So I'm going to hand this mic off to you and I want you to speak from your heart and tell the wrongful conviction audience how you feel and what you think. Well, I mean, um, if, if I could say anything, I was just like, it's just about bringing awareness to uh, uh, wrongful convictions, you know, prior to, you know, me entering prison and, 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 and seeing it firsthand, you know, I never would have thought these things are possible. You know, you, you look on TV and you see people being arrested and, you know, they, they, they paint this picture of guilt before innocence. And, uh, you know, I, I just want people to be aware that, you know, before we, jump to conclusions and, and, uh, you know, just to, to listen and, and, and to the facts and, and, and learn more about these types of things. Um, you know, in, in regards to the law itself, these people have committed crimes, you know, these people that, that, that allow these things to happen, holding people accountable is, is to me is, is, is more than anything. And, uh, these police officers that stole my life, your life, but just, just make, I'd say bringing awareness to these types of things. And, uh, you know, I thank you guys for having me and Alan here today. I thank you, Jimmy. You know, I, you know, I got a lot of love for you. You know, whatever I can do to help you, man, I'm always going to be there for you as well. You know, so I, I just thank you all for having us. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Jimmy Dennis. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flum and Kevin Waters. The senior producer for this episode is Jackie Pauley, and our producers are Lila Robinson and Jeff Clyborne. Our editor is Roxandra Guidi. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me on Facebook as Jimmy Dennis, on Instagram at Jimmy Dennis Music. 
I'm also an R&B singer-songwriter, and you can find all my music on iTunes or wherever you get your music. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Next week on the guest-hosted episodes of Wrongful Conviction, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King will interview Robert Dubois about being sentenced to die by electrocution for a crime he didn't commit. Gilbert is the host of Lava for Good's newest documentary podcast, Bone Valley, which follows the story of Leo Schofield, a man wrongfully convicted for the murder of his wife near Tampa, Florida. Leo is currently incarcerated at Florida State Prison, the same prison where Robert Dubois was held for 28 long years. In this fascinating interview, Gilbert will talk to Robert about the shoddy police work and junk science that landed Robert on death row. Listen next Monday in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. <laughs> I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.